For LA Times Studios and The Real, I'm Mark Olson, and we are assembled here today to discuss the major motion picture event, Avengers Infinity War. And I'm joined by some of my colleagues from the Movie Desk. I am the Prime Minister of Wakanda, representing Travel Anderson right now. I'm superfan Sanaya Kelly. I'm Justin Chang, film critic. And just uh, right here from the top of our conversation, I should make clear that the first part of the conversation we're going to try to have be a sort of spoiler light. I can't guarantee spoiler free as we can. And then as we move deeper into the conversation, we'll really kind of get into it and get into like the true, true spoilers, like who was Kaiser Soze, and it kind of explain for everybody where we're at. So, Justin, you wrote the Times review of the Avengers Infinity War. So why don't you kind of lay the groundwork here and, and about kind of where this movie puts us within the larger kind of arc and universe of the MCU. Right. Um, and Sonia can correct me if I get any of this wrong because I have seen all 19 MCU movies, but it's just kind of funny because every time I watch these, I sort of have to remind myself, oh yeah, who's that and who's she in love with and who's he fighting? It's so... Not an expert by any means, but this is the 19th one. There is this real sense of culmination around this movie 10 years after Iron Man launched. It's funny, too, because the title is Infinity War, which I actually didn't know going in because, again, I kind of keep sort of a closed mind about these things. I didn't know that it refers to these Infinity Stones, which the villain Thanos played in a really good performance, I think, by Josh Brolin, is trying to acquire and then all hell will break loose if he does. But it's funny because Infinity War, it kind of just, it feels like the movie is very long. This series has lasted for a very long time and will, despite this this being sort of the end times, I think it will stretch on for a long time yet. Infinity is a very fitting word for just the experience of how ubiquitous the Marvel Disney brand is and just how kind of all-encompassing experience this is. And so I I wish I'd liked the movie better myself. Um, I think that the reactions have been kind of all over the map, as you'd expect, as they usually are. But I was actually kind of refreshed to, to see that the movie didn't actually feel overcluttered to me. Like, I actually feel like they were very strategic about which characters they put together, which crossovers they're going to do. You know, having, like, Iron Man hang out with Doctor Strange, you know, and Thor going to hang out with the Guardians of the Galaxy for a little while. So... Were those spoilers? Everything is a spoiler here, right? It's like it's like almost like I feel like that's essentially yeah. the plot of the story. That's kind of the story point. So I don't I don't feel like that. Some is, people though, it's like yeah. it's like anything you know. You even mentioned that like raccoon is in the movie. Ah, spoiler. But a well, it's funny because I have to confess the thing that I did not realize that this is Avengers: Infinity War, comma part one. That there yes. is going to be another movie a year from now that will sort of continue this story. So even the movie Infinity War is in its own way endless. Narrative does not sort of close. It's still open-ended in the episodic way that the MCU movies have been overall. And so, Sanaya, for you, as someone who really is invested in these movies, what does it kind of mean to you to have everything kind of coming to a point like this, to have all the crossover? Like, do fans and just yourself, is that something you've really been wanting? Like, have you been hoping for the movie where, like, everybody's in the movie? I have, but... At the same time, when you do that, every character gets less screen time and less time to, like, develop their arcs or whatever. But it is definitely gratifying to see Thor with the Guardians or all the New York gang meet up, like Doctor Strange and Iron Man and Spider-Man. I don't know if that's a spoiler if I put too many people in there. But some people argue the other way. I've talked to somebody who specifically hated the fact that they team up in these movies, which I think is strange because I think if you're going to sit through 19 films, you want to eventually see people just, like— 
with scandal and the how to get away with murder crossover. That's exciting to fans. It was everything. Was it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know, Travel, you are relatively new to these motion pictures. Yes. And so for you in watching Infinity War, did you still get emotionally invested? Could you still track this as a narrative as someone who doesn't necessarily know what it means when Doctor Strange talks to Tony Stark? I mean, so I had a lot of problems going into this movie just because I didn't know who was who, like, at all. I was like, which white man is this? Oh, which white man is that? Which white woman is this? Oh, where are the black people? Oh, there they go, you know? And the only people that I knew were the Black Panther people, for obvious reasons. Um, so I'm biased, obviously. But I figured it out. Like, I got it. So it's, it is one of those movies where if you're not the biggest fan, I do think you will be able to track what's going on. You may not necessarily know people's powers or their names or whatever the case may be, but, like, you can figure it out. But everybody, I mean, in the screening that I was in, everybody really cared about, you know, the Black Panther folks. That's when, like, applause came on, when we heard the little drums and we went into Wakanda. I was like, yes, people, you know what you came for. Although they weren't in the movie as much as I thought they should have been, but, you know, I'm biased, like I said. That was kind of, I think, Sanaya's and our, my experience, too, at the premiere. You know, there was huge applause. And obviously, you know, we're fresh off Black Panther. And everyone, any shots of Wakanda, I think Wakanda was the only title on the screen. Because they show you when they go there that got that kind of, you know. And I just think those. And to me, that kind of does highlight a deficiency in this movie. Because, I mean, I understand that it's about convergence. And that is, the, you know, this is a very different creature than Black Panther. But I do think it kind of points to just what sort of a watershed Black Panther was. And it said, oh, even in this Marvel Universe... There is room for a fresh point of view, something we truly haven't seen or even thought of before in in relation to these movies. And so here it's just, I feel like that movie, Black Panther, felt like it was just so just bursting at the seams. There was so much there. And here, despite there being so many more characters, I feel like there's so much less and so little in this movie by comparison. Because everything just kind of, everything just kind of does what it's supposed to do. You know, like there's, and it's funny because despite the level of shocks supposedly that there are, especially waiting at the end of the movie, which I won't give away at this point. It's actually kind of not that surprising. That was my takeaway. Well, do you think that that, I mean, the directors of this film, Joe and Anthony Russo, who've also directed a couple of the Captain America pictures, like along the the way up until here, they simply, I mean, in part, this may be because of their background in television. They're a little bit more workmanlike. They seem to deal with the sort of the episodic nature of juggling all the, you know, A, B, and C storylines well, but they don't have the same sort of point of view and sense of style that, you know, Taika Waititi did with Thor Ragnarok, certainly what Ryan Coogler did with Black Panther. And is that kind of the problem? Yeah, or even like what Scott Derrickson did with Doctor Strange, which is maybe one of the most stylistically inventive uh, Marvel movies. I think one thing in, in the Russo Brothers' favor, and I'm, I'm actually a, kind of a fan of Captain America Winter Soldier, I think, which is, I think, considered to be one of the better ones. And I like Civil War as well. There's so much humor in these movies now. Um, they're sort of like the dialogue comedy that really makes these movies sing. And so... And the Russo brothers who've worked on Arrested Development and, you know, and Community and stuff, I think that serves them well here. But, yeah, I think it's more, this movie feels more like choreography and crowd control than anything else, you know? And, and that's fine. That's just kind of, that's that's the assignment. I know, Sanai, one of the things that I experienced when I was watching the movie was simply the way that it does sometimes feel like there's a dialogue scene, some joking, and then we fight for a while. And then there were even sometimes just blackouts, like, and now it's a commercial break. And then the story comes back. And for you, like, how how do you feel about the way the movie handles humor and sort of balances that character stuff with the action stuff? I mean, in my opinion, I think the two films that shine the most humor-wise are Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 and Thor Ragnarok. 
So I think this film did a good job to, like, take those elements and also incorporate it while also building off of Civil War, which you need because basically the first movie you need to see is the end credit scene of Thor Ragnarok. That's where it kind of jumps off from. And then when we get back to Earth, it takes on everything that happened in Civil War. So, like, those elements are still there. Star-Lord by nature is a funny character, as is Thor recently. So, like, I think it was important to have humor. I think it's those movies are most enjoyable when there's humor as well as all the fighting and action, even though those stand alone and be, as be, being great. I know, Justin, you mentioned Josh Brolin's performance as Thanos, the villain of the movie. And that, I think, shows up what really has been a kind of a deficiency in a lot of these films up until now, which is they've like had the very well-known villain problem. And then in some ways, just the sense of stakes. Like what, like it's funny for myself as, you know, I've seen most of these movies, not all of these movies. And like, I never understood the Infinity Stones until this, until Infinity War. And suddenly like, it makes sense, like what they're fighting for. And it just felt like this kind of mattered in a way that it hadn't up until now. And do you think that that, the sort of the, the villain issue and Brolin's performance is one of the things that does really help sort of motor this movie in a way that some of the other ones... I do, and I think that we have had, you know, as far as the villains go, they've had kind of a mini renaissance. I think Michael B. Jordan being the best in Black Panther, where he's the single most compelling character in that movie. Kate Blanchett in Thor Ragnarok is pretty great, too, I think. And in this one, yeah, it's, it's funny, too, because Josh Brolin doesn't really look like Josh Brolin in this movie. It's a motion capture thing. He looks like he swallowed this giant purple boulder. And despite that, I think gives real kind of gravitas and real melancholy. He doesn't come off as some raving, screeching person. He sort of really does seem to believe in what he's doing and the good of that. I mean, he's this genocidal megalomaniac who really does fancy himself this merciful, messianic kind of figure. So... There's something very compelling with that and his interactions with his daughter, Gamora, uh, played by Zoe Saldana here, which is one of the key arcs of the movie. Yeah, you can see that they, you know, and there are moving elements to that and and emotionally complicated elements of that. And you can see that they put some uh, care into developing that relationship. So that part of the film definitely uh, is well done. Well, I was surprised by the amount of screen time given both to Gamora, played by Zoe Saldana, and also just Doctor Strange, played by Benedict Cumberbatch. Sinead, what did you think of that? Like, had the Gamora storyline been something that you were sort of waiting to see surface in this way? Like, did you know that it was going to become as important as it was here? It was hinted at in Guardians of the Galaxy 2 because the storyline between Gamora and her sister Nebula, both adopted daughters of Thanos, were, like, introduced there, kind of. And we knew that this was coming along. We knew Thanos was going to be the big bad in this film. So, obviously, if he has daughters who are out to kill him, it's going to play a factor in this final, like, well, not final, because I'm sure this franchise will stretch on for another 10 years. Travel for you, do you feel left out, like not knowing these movies that well just as part of the cultural conversation, like the way in which they have become so dominant, do you feel like it's okay to not like these movies or to not pay attention to these movies? I think it's very okay to not pay attention or like these movies. And to be honest, I wouldn't have gone and seen this Adventures, what's the name of it? Infinity War. Um, if the Black Panther people weren't going to be in it. Like I said, they weren't in it enough. I think it's okay to not be into these movies. And if if I understand correctly, they used to cater to a certain type of audience a lot more. And now the films are becoming more more funny and more interesting to people who aren't just there for the guns and the fights and stuff like that. And so perhaps this new age of films that we have now will bring in more interest. I think the style of a Black Panther, things that I've heard about, Thor, Ragnar, whatever it's called, 
I have not seen it. I do need to see it because I love Tessa Thompson and she deserves everything. But I haven't gotten there yet. So, Naya, so you were, they had a, a big press day for the movie that in the way of certain mega productions recently, the assembled journalists had not actually seen the movie that they were all there to talk about. And the photos that come from that day, in particular with this event with Infinity War, the cast is huge. And they had all those people up on a stage on risers. Like, there's so many of them, you can't even put them, like, in a row. Just tell me a little bit about that. What was it like to be in that room where there's kind of a level of confusion in that the journalists don't know what questions to ask and the cast doesn't know even how to answer the questions because at that point they're trying to still worry about spoilers. And so what was it like to, to be in that room? So there were three tiers of stars. Chris Evans was not there. Joe and Anthony Russo were there. So every time somebody was asked a question, they kind of looked to them to see if they could answer, including Robert Downey Jr., who ended up revealing that they'd already shot the second part. The questions were kind of funny. Chadwick Boseman got asked if this movie is Black Panther 1.5. And he's like, no, this is Avengers Infinity War. It's not Black Panther 1.5 by any means. At all. At all. Okay. It's not. Um, Scarlett Johansson got asked about the fashion elements, and she had a very funny reply. Um, she, like, pantomime being a QVC host. Like, the fashion elements you see here, no, I wear the same outfit for the past 10 years. Like, if you want to talk to somebody about fashion elements, like, you can let us know. But, um... It de- even though it was a room full of journalists, it definitely felt like a room full of fans. Like, everybody was definitely stood up to take their videos and, like, get their shots. Also, Jeff Goldblum moderated, which is insane. He was a grandmaster in Thor Ragnarok and a national treasure, as Robert Downey Jr. said. So it was a crazy experience. And then afterwards, when I had to sit down with four of the women of this, I kept getting goosebumps. So it was just, like, it was crazy as a fan to sit next to these people, even though they— Look, you know, like they do in real life. Zoe wasn't green, so it was just... And who was that? Who were you sitting with? I sat with Zoe Saldana, um, Elizabeth Olsen, Scarlett Johansson, and Denai, who's everything, Denai Guerrero. Now, I have a question. So, like, y'all haven't seen the movie. No, and they hadn't seen the movie. They also... Okay, see, that would be weird to me, even as a journalist. Like, I'm supposed to come here and do some reporting, and I ain't seen the goddamn movie. Something... But we know that, like, Disney and, like, these big you know, blockbuster-type films, they're doing that a lot more now, where their press event is before the premiere, before Mm -hmm. they allow press to see it. Did that impact? Did you feel that that changed things for you or for other people in the room? It would have been nice to be able to ask the questions that I have now, but it's also fine that I wasn't, because I think that all of us, it's going to be such a long, like, runway between everybody seeing it and us really being able to publicly speak about the spoilers and, like, start to piece together what happened and everything. So I don't know when this press conference could have happened that would have made more sense. Yeah, basically. I and think they've been was, concerned about spoilers. That wasn't there like yeah, somebody wrote a letter asking people to mm-hmm. like not... It was a director's. Okay, yeah, they wrote a letter asking people to like not spoil it for everybody else. Yeah. But now, Sanaya, one thing I would be interesting about the dynamic that you were involved in with those actresses, and first of all, shout out to LA Times movie editor Jeff Berkshire for the way that he's been put in this position of grappling with how to cover these movies within this dynamic of, like, we haven't seen it yet. And in some ways, I feel like for you, with those actresses in particular, it must have been freeing in some way in that you could ask them kind of big-picture questions that normally you would be, like, the 20th minute of your interview, but you sort of had to start there because you didn't have other stuff. And so in your conversation with them, did you feel like they— what's their perspective on what these movies— are, what these roles mean for them? What was the kind of stuff that they did feel like they could talk about? 
I think being asked about things that weren't about fashion was so refreshing. Like, Zoe said, oh, your questions were great. And, like, Elizabeth Olsen had to leave, but she, like, decided to stay to listen to what Zoe was saying before she, like, she had to go. But, and her people were trying to call her, but she's like, I'm just going to stay here for a few minutes because I'm being expired right now. Which was nice because they do have a lot to say. They have contributed a lot to the past 10 years of this. And it is insulting. It's incredibly insulting that they get asked about what they're wearing rather than the process behind these characters. Because they have evolved in such dramatic ways since the beginning of, since Iron Man, you know? Denai had a very thoughtful answer about, she said she likes to convey her character's dynamism and agency. I think that was the most important in her character, Okoye as well as showing her heart. So she's not just this general. She's also, like, she shows warmth to the girls when she rescues them. And she's funny. Like, she makes jokes. And it's important because this is what real women are. And I think too often they get underwritten parts, even in these films that generally do a better job than other superhero franchises. Elizabeth Olsen said that with the exception of the first two Thor films, there's never really been an instance where a woman is just there to play opposite a man, which is true because Natalie Portman's character is kind of just the love interest. She doesn't really serve the plot in any other way, which is probably why she hasn't, like, returned. Yeah, it was just, it was really nice to sit down with them. Sanaya, in your conversation with the actresses from the movie, in one of what I found the most engaging moments of the movie, so it all builds to this big battle, and there's a moment where there's Scarlet Witch, Black Widow, and Okoye. All three of those female characters are fighting character, and I love this character named Proxima Midnight, as voiced by Ms. Carrie Coon. And the three women, like, all have this series of glances between each other, especially between Scarlet Witch and Black Widow, that implied a whole backstory that I don't maybe don't know these movies well enough. Like, what is the dynamic that's at play in that moment in particular? Scarlet actually said something about that. She mentioned how originally this scene was written so that when she first meets, like, Okoye or whatever, it's kind of like a looking you up and down, like, oh, what are you wearing? Like, who are you? You're in the new girl. I've heard about you. But that's not how it plays out in real life. Women who have respect for each other and know each other to be capable are not going to be catty when you first— there's, you're going to meet each other with that, like, high regard. So I think the glance was meant to convey that. I barely remember that scene because there's so much in that film to process. But I think that it was meant to convey tremendous respect, especially for Scarlet, which was like she was introduced in the second Avengers and she's kind of young. And I know Black Widow like looks after her because she was like they were on the same team, I think, in Civil War. Right. They I think so. so. I just have to say I, I loved that scene too, that quick exchange. Of, and I think it does convey a lot. And I think my favorite part of the whole movie <laughs> There's this part where Bruce Banner, played by Mark Ruffalo, is as Hulk. He's kind of having some Hulk performance anxiety issues. He can't get his green mojo together. And so he's been strapped into this machine. And so he's running and he trips into battle. And Denai Guerrero, Okoye coming by, gives him just the stink. It made me think that the black people not amused by white people meme from yeah. a few years ago. It's so like, this is going to bring back that meme. Yes. You know, so um, just such a hilarious That was hilarious. <laughs> and now, now that we're sort of free to talk about spoilers in the movie, I think one of the things that's been a complaint about the movies throughout the arc is that there was a lack of stakes, that... Even when they were destroying whole cities, it was bloodless. It sort of meant nothing. You really never saw a body count. And in this movie, that changes, right? From the first moments of the film, you see, I can't remember his character's name, but Idris Elba is killed right away. You see Tom Hiddleston's Loki killed right away. I don't remember. I don't remember either, but it begins with an M. 
No, I'm talking about I didn't remember Idris Elba being in the movie at all. Are you serious? That's the thing. I mean, he's got and he's got, you know, his eyes are like some weird color. He doesn't mm-hmm. really look like Idris Elba, which oh. is a terrible thing to do to Idris Elba. You have to see Thor if you're gonna remember his character, because he oh, does okay. look different. <laughs> I was like, Idris Elba, what? What? He's like the first person to die. Yeah. yeah. But they did establish straight away that characters were going to die within the story structure of this movie. Mm-hmm. And that this was going to matter in a way that it hadn't in other films. I also thought it was so notable in that final battle sequence. There's a moment, I think it's actually at the end of the scene we were just talking about, where Scarlett Johansson has what obviously is a character's blood on her face, and it's blue. It's, like, not human blood. It's creature blood. But, like, even that is something I don't think we've ever really seen in these movies before. Proxima's blood, right? Mm -hmm. I think it's, yeah, yeah. I mean, when Quicksilver was shot, we saw the bullet holes. There was kind of it was kind of red. It wasn't like gratuitous blood, but we've seen people die before. That one he was introducing that film, so it kind of was the stakes were definitely not as high. Yeah, I'm not gonna go into the. I'll do it. Do the, it. Like everybody dies or everybody disappears dies. or half the cast dies, gets right. vaporized, and which I don't mean. Yeah. They're obviously my spirit is telling me they're not dead. I don't know. Like I feel like in this world of make believe, they just like apparitioned to some other universe or something. Okay, can I, not to quote myself, but I did mention this in my review, and it was kind of a reference put in there because I think, <sighs> so, I used to be a real Days of Our Lives fan. Uh-oh. Do you remember, Travel? did you ever watch it? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> 2003, 2004, when half, the, the Salem stalker kills off half the cast, and they actually did, NBC actually made people believe that they were just killing off the, you know, them off one by one, and they were firing the actors. And Marlena Evans was revealed. She's like one of the most important characters in the show as this as the serial killer. And of course, they're not all really dead. They've just been like somehow through extremely intricate means have been like sent to some island in some parallel universe and they come back and everything. And this reminded me of that. And it, it, I don't think it's an inappropriate c- comparison because the Marvel Cinematic Universe is this ongoing soap opera where there are crossovers and where it's just how can we keep this going? And. For that reason, when I saw it, I mean, I have to say, very few, none of the deaths had any impact on me. Loki, maybe a little bit, I think, because Tom Hiddleston has created a really great character there. But here, when I saw that, I just felt, this is a total bait and switch. We're just being toyed with. Mm -hmm. Everything is reversible. Once you know he has a time stone that can, you know, Thanos has a time stone with which he can reverse everything. All of this is reversible. Loki probably is really dead for real right now. But (laughs) that seems super certain. But everything else, That was the one with the thing in the head. Oh, no, that's he Vision. He choked him. Yeah. Remember in the beginning? No. Loki is the Oh, yeah, yeah, Tom yeah, 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 yeah. No, I do. I do remember. I remember that scene. Well, <laughs> Sanaya, so it's interesting where once we get into this sort of final sequences of the film, it's I don't. It's not quite the last third. I, maybe it's the last, like, you know, 15% of the movie or something, where there a time is reversed, a character who was made dead is made alive to then be killed again. But that does establish the fact the dead can be brought back to life. So once the movie moves into the final sequence where there are many characters are seeming to die, there is, and I felt it in the screening that that I was out of the film, this kind of just autumnal chill like takes over the audience. It is a sort of a haunting sequence. And even the visual effect that's used to signify dying, essentially, it's like ash or leaves blowing away. And what do you just feel about sort of the emotion of those moments? And to have, I mean, the extent to whether or not you think these deaths will hold, 
Like, what did it feel like for you in those moments to see? And in, if nothing else, like, you're not sure who's going to, it's going to happen to. Mm-hmm. As more characters started, like, just drifting into dust, I started to feel a little bit better, if that makes any sense. Because when they first started to do it, it felt very Game of Thrones. It felt like the Red Wedding. It was like, oh, my God, you're going to, you're really going to do this? You're going to take Black Panther after he just made you a billion dollars at the right. box office? But, and... Spider-Man's death was really emotional. I got goosebumps. I almost started to cry because he is a 15-year-old kid. And he started crying like he, he started crying to Tony Stark. Like, I don't want to die. I don't want to go. And they, like, that would, that's heart-wrenching regardless. Like, he's a great character. But obviously, those characters have just been introduced. They've just started their own three-picture deals. So they're not going anywhere. They can't go anywhere. And we definitely did get baited and switched because originally it was supposed to be Infinity War Part 1 and 2. And then they changed it. So it's just Infinity War and Untitled Avengers film. But this is definitely still part one and two. So I don't understand what was the thinking behind that change. I guess we'll find out. I'm sure after every after the first weekend, we'll get more answers. I hope. But. Well, do you think it's so that they can have it be so that Infinity War Part Two can now be Avengers Resurrection or something along those lines? I mean, I'm, I'm hoping it's not, you know, Infinity or more, mm-hmm. more Infinity. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Infinity okay. Plus. So this is I just found this out by searching for spoilers on Twitter. But and the final credit scene. Nick Fury sends a distress signal to one last person before he dies, and it turns out to be Captain Marvel. And that film is coming out in the same way Black Panther came out right before the second part. So it's coming out in March, and then the second part of this film is coming out in April. So it'll be a similar situation where you need to see that film, and then you can see the second part. And I'm sure she will do something. Like, I think that timeline is taking us back to the 90s for some reason. So we'll be able to see that play out, and then she'll end up. Yeah, don't do that, Trevor. Yeah, again, it was very I'm just funny. Confused. I don't understand anything. We'll Jesus. make you a chart. We'll make you a flow chart. <laughs> That's what we need. But it was funny to me, the, like the screening that I was at. Everybody knew that there was a very narratively important post credits stinger mm-hmm. scene, and it was funny. So the first part of the crawl plays. And then the title comes on the screen, Avengers Infinity War. And there's even like kind of a pause in the music. And people were hushing each other. Everyone thought, oh, here's going to be the scene. And then it was just like unit production manager. (laughs) The the credits kept going. And the place kind of laughed but also was annoyed. And the people had to really sit there all the way to the end. And then that final scene, you saw a couple more characters get turned to dust or what have you. And you see that distress signal sent to Captain Marvel. Which essentially signaled that a movie you already know is coming Mm -hmm. is coming. And so to me... It was indicative of, A, why spoiler culture is so bogus, and B, why the sort of these the sort of narrative surprises of Avengers Infinity War, in some ways it's like the surprise of getting what you already know is coming. It's like when your Amazon order arrives. Like, right. I knew I was getting this thing. <laughs> I will just say, I was in that same screening, and there was a, a woman who was sitting by me, and she was just very expressive about all of the deaths. Like, she just kept... <gasps> Like, the entire movie. And then at the end of the movie, while we were waiting for that final scene, she was like, this is a horror movie. (laughs) I was like, girl, calm down. Like, they ain't dead for real. I mean, they probably are. Or maybe they're not. I don't know anything. But I was like, girl, calm down. The whole thing wasn't as emotionally impactful as the climax of Twilight Breaking Dawn Part 2. Wow, yeah. The mother of all fake-out death Mm -hmm. scenes where they actually (laughs) did just do it. And then they said, fooled you. That was so great. That was great. (laughs) Well, I have to say, tonight, I... The fact that among the characters that we see die in that sequence is Black Panther was the one that seemed most like, y'all. You can't believe that within the way they've just structured the story of these Mm -hmm. movies that they would, in fact, be killing him off at this point. 
And then also the fact that Chris Evans as Steve Rogers slash Captain America, like, doesn't die. And yet you kind of know within the metatextual world of these movies that he's even spoken about how he's nearing the end. I don't know that he really does he even have any movies left in his contract. Like I, I he is he, he is coming to the end of his time in this role. Mm-hmm. And so if anyone should get the hero's farewells turned to dust, it seemed like it was him. And yet he's one of the last people standing. I mean, I don't know if this is an overlook for Marvel because we def- I think fans of the film definitely know everything about the rollout and what's coming next and how many movies left people have in their contract. So, like, I'm sure that they must be aware of that. So I don't understand. I, they could have just kept it Infinity War Part 1 and 2 and we would have been fine. But if you're going to introduce that first and then take it back and then still deliver, it's kind of weird. And then also with Robert Downey Jr. and Tony Stark, who has the scene, which is... Maybe the most, I think, got the most reaction at our screening because you really do think that this is before everyone gets vaporized. It's like, you know, where Thanos, like, stabs him in the chest and it's like you really do think, oh, yeah, he's not going to survive Right, right. And yet he does, which is kind of the first kind of indication that there's a certain bait and switch going on. If they've promised stakes, I think they should deliver stakes. But, um, yeah. Especially since that's something I go back and forth on. Like, Tony Stark, Iron Man, is a human with no sort of supernatural powers. But now Captain America, he sort of has powers because he's... He's had the serum. Right. Yeah. And that was the thing. I, that, it, that is one of the things, Travel. I don't know if it was confusing for you at all. Like, who can do what? Even Hulk. Like, when, like why can't Hulk be Hulk, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I when you were just saying that, I was like, who's Captain America? I kept calling somebody Captain Planet. During, I was like, I think that's Captain Planet or something like that. I don't know, Captain something. I just, it's just too many people. It was just overload for me. And I was just, I was just like, I don't get it. I don't understand. But But did you get lost at all as far as who can do what? Yeah, I was like, I don't understand any of this. The girl with the red hair who does the red stuff with her hands. Um... How she just, like, she teleported from, like, the little place where Shuri was trying to, you know, pull the thing out the guy's head. And all of a sudden, she's, like, saving the day with Okoye and the other girl. And I'm just like, I don't, this teleportation thing that some people have, but other people don't. I don't get powers. I don't understand what's going on. Well, some people are just regular humans. Uh-huh. Some people are hum- sort of, like, humans. Like, enhanced. Enhanced humans. She's a witch. She's, like, supernatural. Mm. Uh-huh. And then some people are genuine Space aliens. Or gods. And then some people are actual gods. Interesting. Again, we'll make a chart. Sounds like witchcraft. (laughs) The thing is, though, the and the appeal of scenes like that when you do, you know, what their powers are and the interplay of those powers can be enormously entertaining. It reminds me of another Marvel property, the X-Men movies. I mean, they're all about the collision of, and think back to what Brian Singer did, which I think, you know, in those movies, it's very inventive and it's very fun and it's done coherently enough that you can actually kind of keep track of, you know, this trumps. It's like an epic game of rock, paper, scissors, right? <laughs> and, and I think in this movie, they did a pretty good job. Like, I was just about able, you know, I think what Doctor Strange does is particularly mind-bending with his ability to kind of, like, teleport, <laughs> create these sort of loopholes. I, I think those those parts of the film are well done. They had that scene at the beginning where somebody described the six stones. Oh, yeah, they did. Do we know that, um, like, does the world, like, know and expect that um, Zoe Saldana's character gets killed? Absolutely not. We have never seen that stone before. We didn't know how you get it or what color it was or where it would be or any of that. So that was a surprise. And do we think her death is also impermanent? I don't know. If any of the characters' deaths are permanent, hers is probably it. Because I don't, I mean, the only way we can really reverse this, I think if He threw her off a cliff. He did throw her off a cliff. Is she human of any sort? Like, is she just... 
Like, does she have blood? I mean, I guess they all have blood. She's, I'm asking stupid questions. No, no. <laughs> She's definitely able to die. So uh-huh. if that were, if she were going to die, that's how it would be. Mm-hmm. But but like if that time thingy, what's the the, the green stone? The time stone, yeah. He, if he could turn back time, it would assume yeah, that they could turn. Yeah, but how far is he going to go? That's I think it has not been stated sort of within the world of the movie uh-huh. exactly how that thing functions. Mm-hmm. And can you sort of like pick and choose how you go back and do it? Yeah. Or would it have to be basically going all the way back to the moment where sort of the genocide began? Like what does that do to, as in any time travel movie— what does that then do to, like, the overall sort of arc of other parts of the universe and, mm-hmm. and things like that? Which is why Doctor Strange is so adamant about, like, protecting it and not using it and stuff in the first place. So he would have to go back pretty far because he killed literally all of Asgard and Loki in the beginning and then killed Gamora and then killed everybody else. <laughs> so, like, kind of, it's a long ways to go back. I'm not sure how many days transpired. I don't know if we saw days, but... It was a lot. But then also the, just the final moment of the movie, the fact that it ends on Thanos and it ends in a sort of melancholy mood. I mean, he's watching a sunrise of this new world that he's created, and yet there is an air of melancholy and sadness to it. And again, I think it's interesting within the world of these movies to A, to have the button be on the villain like that and to B, give him sort of an emotional life that I don't think we've ever really seen from a villain here before. I really did actually like that final scene, and it is haunting for all the reasons you mention. I think there's some good filmmaking here. I think the Russo brothers are good filmmakers. When everyone's dying, that is a very haunting effect that you mentioned, Mark. It's like, and it kind of reminded me of like the way Voldemort died at the end of Harry Potter, where the, the kind of becoming like this leaf storm. And as part of me felt like it's hard. There's this tension for me between the visual poetry of some of the filmmaking and the emotion that you do have invested in some of these characters with just the very mechanical, very commercial just logic of this whole enterprise where, as you know, it's like, well, of course we know that Black Panther's coming back and Spider-Man is coming back. Unless the objective of stuff like this is to not really surprise you or to not really make you think. It's just sort of to tease you with the idea that your favorites could die, but don't worry. It's meant to all be reassuring in the end. They're all coming back. Maybe not all of them, but most of them or something. So I don't know. I just It's funny to me even when we were, we were talking, you know, the fact that you had to cover the movie without having seen it. It's like the movies are the reason for this, but they've also become weirdly irrelevant, like obliterated or dwarfed by the whole experience. Like we just kind of, you know, this Marvel universe, which is just so all-consuming, the movies, it's not that they're an afterthought, but side of Marvel that exists where the movies don't even matter. In a way, and they're almost sort of like an afterthought or just a, a placeholder of some sort. But then just a few months from now, we're going to get another one. Yep. That Ant-Man mm-hmm. and the Wasp will be coming out. Yep. It, it will probably it, be a nice little, you know, right. comic relief after the, the brooding intensity of this movie. And then and we'll get to yeah. see what he's up to because he was not in None. this film at all. He so. got a shout out. So, like, do these different, are these all these films happening at the same time in this universe? No, not at the same time. Like, this film picks up two years after Guardians 2 and then right after Thor. They happen in the same universe, but not necessarily at the same time. We don't always know exactly when. Like, it's not told in the movie when it picks up. You have to kind of, like, do your research, which is why I'm sure Marvel understands that everybody has done their research and they know what they're planning, kind of. Which is why with, like, the idea of Black Panther dying, y'all gonna do a sequel to it because y'all want that money, so he ain't dead. Or or if maybe that part of this, you know, franchise is happening at a different time or whatever the case. That's why I asked that question. With that, I think we're going to uh, exit the MCU for now. Why don't you tell everybody where they can find you online? I'm at Travel Anderson. I'm at Sanaya K. I am at Justin C. Chang. And for LA Times Studio and The Real, 
I'm Mark Olson. Thanks for listening. <laughs>